everybody. Welcome to episode 5 of the Ice Cash Report. Tim and I are back to break down the Penguins' 34-14 win over the Duquesne Dukes this past Saturday. Tim, I got a lot to get to in this one. I've been sitting on it for probably 48 hours now, but let me say this, and I'll bring you in. What a change. I don't want to say change. What a difference a week makes. Uh, you've always said that it's not the improvement week one to week two. It's week two to week three. And the Penguins, I mean, they were much, much improved in every area of the game against Duquesne on Saturday, a playoff team from a year ago. Yeah, they were much better. And I think routine had a lot to do with that because they had the first game in Alabama in August. They had two weeks off. They mm-hmm. played. It was a sloppy game. It was a they, it was a win. They had some positives and negatives. Mm-hmm. Then they came in against Duquesne the following week. You've seen a team play four quarters. Yes. And that was what it was important. And I thought what we've seen is really coaching staff really prepared for this game perfectly. I, I, I thought they agree. did a great job of putting players in certain situations to succeed. Both offensively and defensively. Mm-hmm. I thought the game planning was maybe the best game plan I've seen in a long time. Tim, I think you're hitting everything spot on right and, there. And, you know, obviously there's room to refer improvement. But the encouragement you get for the first three games of the season and the growth you see each week mm-hmm. uh, is impressive. And that is something I'm excited about. And... Those are the you know the, the initial takeaways I had from the game. Tim, I thought, and I believe I texted you this Saturday, Nathan Mays played his best football game as a Penguin. I get he was only 8-11. But like you said, the game plan, offensively and defensively, was arguably the best we've seen in a long time. Might have been the best game plan I've seen since we beat South Dakota State here in 2017. I thought, you and I talked about it briefly last episode. We liked this matchup for the Penguins. Duquesne was not going to run the ball at the quarterback very much. He was going to scramble when he absolutely had to, but the design quarterback runs or or rollouts, they were not going to do that. And I thought that really played in the Penguins' hands well when you got Richmond and Bynum and Reed. Yeah, I thought actually Richmond and Reed played terrific. I, I thought they were the keys to the defensive line. Justice Reed showed why. Yeah. He's an All-American. Exactly. Uh, he he was an unstoppable force. Um, Penguins asked some questions with the run defense. You know, Duquesne ran the ball 39 times for 137 yards. Tim, I'm going to say maybe 80 of those came in garbage time. Yeah, Hines had a couple nice runs, but you know, the AJ truth of the matter Hines. is they they contained them the entire you know most of the game, and they got behind so early that they had to abandon some of their their game plan coming in. Carries forty two yards, they held Hines to. You do that to any running back, you're going to win the football game. Exactly. And here's what I like the most. We'll touch offensively here in a minute. Penguins got beat deep a lot against Howard. Yes, a lot they of did. deep balls got beat. Stole some given up on Saturday, but the coverage was much better. I thought they got to the quarterback and they tackled much better, except for a couple. Now, but you're going to have that every game. 
They're only game three. I just thought the overall attitude, and this is not to say they weren't ready for Howard. They were engaged like they were for the Sanford game. And I want to bring, I want to talk about the crowd first. We sat here on Saturday and we said, come out and support these guys. It's it's a big one. You said this is the biggest home game since 2016. I mean, we weren't shy about it. This was a big game for our team. 15,991. They came out and they were loud from the start and they were loud until that clock hit zero. What an what an atmosphere that was. And it could have been easy to sit home and say, I know I want to watch Ohio State. No, I want to watch this. It's only Duquesne. They they came out and they were loud from the kickoff. And that was huge. You could see the team, and I think you made mention this, uh, the team fed off it immediately. I think why she's starting to learn that if you have a good product, people will come. Mm-hmm. And if you have a consistent start time, you'll even have a, an opportunity to for people to recognize mm-hmm. when you're going to start. Yep. Uh, not to get on a different level well, than worry, what the that game. That changes in a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, I know it does. The effort is there. I still a tangent here. Mm-hmm. We'd rather see seven o'clock kickoffs than six o'clock kickoffs. I agree. I just the years ago it used to be seven o'clock evening kicks and i I have no problem with that Uh, i just think it's much easier to get there especially if you have to work on a saturday Mm -hmm. and that's the same thing with afternoons if you you know you're gonna have you rather have your evenings free Mm -hmm. and i always believe your crowd is your crowd your base is your base and people will come see a great product and if you're consistently offered at a certain time they will find it. When it juggles all over the place like it has in the past, then it gets it's tough. tough to find. We were at 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. This year, they're, they're much better at it. They have had basically 1 and 2 o'clock starts, and then they have had, the I think, the 6 o'clock in the evenings. Yeah, 6 o'clock the next two weeks, yeah. Which is fine. For the next two games. I would rather see a 7 o'clock kick. That's a personal thing. We'll see. I, I have no idea what type of analysis went into that time and why and they it probably it. has something to do with the ESPN plus and all that it very well may it very well may I really couldn't answer all those questions and there's no only like I said am I being tic-tac on that yes that's just my mm-hmm. that's my thought process but about the game and the crowd again that's what college football is about you bring people there they cheer mm-hmm. they get involved they they inspire a team to achieve yeah. to the next level. It's much more fun to play in front of 15,000 people than 3,000 people. Yep. And that stadium is a big stadium. You know, it can hold 25, 23, 24,000 mm-hmm. people or more when opportunity arises. So, especially, you know, the home side. The home side is, what, 17,000 seats. Yeah. And then you have about 3,500 on the other side, maybe 4,500. And they can do others. Yeah. I've seen them done it in the past. So, it, it, can be, it can be very, very daunting for a team to come in and see that type of crowd. And When that place is loud, it's... Like you said, it's daunting for the opponent. Yeah, and, and Duquesne, God bless them, come from the Pittsburgh area, obviously, you know, but they're not going to play in front of crowds like that. No. They're t- they, they step up and play a bigger school, but a school that is also a subdivision, Division yep. One team, they're not going to f- see 15,000 people at a, no, at a game. They got 3,000 that were opener or 
Someone's, yeah, they got a and that's thousand. typical for yeah, that yeah. size school. Most schools, that's what you get. Matter of fact, you go to Indiana State and that, you're not going to see no. four, four to 5,000 no. people max. No. You know, and, and others that are in the conference. There, there are times you, we've gone to Indiana State, Missouri State, or even Western Illinois, and Western Illinois could be good. Yes. You're not drawing 1,000 people. Right. And it's just, like you said, it's a credit to this area. When you give them a winning product, it's also a deal with adage. If you build it, they will come. Oh, yeah. And, and if you win, Youngstown's going to show up. And I thought I, that was a big key. Like I said, I thought the overall effort going into this game was one of the best efforts I've seen from this program in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least executed game plan, executed uh, what they wanted to achieve, and also not letting up. That was, I thought, was a big part of the game. Once they got the lead, they really kept pushing the game forward. You know, yes. And that to me was a big part of it. And I'll be honest, I love the strategy of picking which games to use Mark Wade in. I and thought- that I thought this was a perfect opportunity to showcase mm-hmm. him because uh, no one a has any tape on him. And exactly. B, right now, his probably his running game is at a higher level than and his passing game for the collegiate level. And it should be. And it, three and, games right. It's being a true freshman. Yes. And with the rule change, now you can play in four games. You pick and choose these games and scenarios mm-hmm. where he has a handful of plays that he likes. Now, you use them for the next, let's say, let's say they use them next week in mm-hmm. the game. And you do the same type of thing, red zone, maybe inside the 10, and he he scores, again, a couple touchdowns. That would be fine. But what you're doing, you're setting him up for a game against one of them in the conference where he pulls out and throws the ball. And you know it could happen. And we know, because we've seen Mark play, that he's capable of finding receivers and making plays with his arm as well as his leg. And it'll be interesting to see how they continue to develop him as a quarterback for the future and use him properly. Picking and choosing when to use them. I mean, he may not play for another three weeks. He may play in... Yeah, we have no idea. Yeah, we don't know what the game plan will be. And that's, you know, Bo and his coaching staff will make that decision. And I I like how they chose to use them in this game and how they used them. I thought it was a great weapon. And they used all three quarterbacks Some effectively. Some Duquesne has not seen yet. Yeah. We, and we that's some things that Duquesne had not seen on Why do you – I keep saying this. Why do you think you have to continue to develop your offense and show things that they haven't seen before? Because now other teams have to practice against it. And that is such a huge part of football is you're setting up your future opponents because now they have to worry about this that they didn't have to worry about prior to this being shown. And that is an exciting part of the X and O's of a game and in the psychology of of football. And it would be I'm really excited about where this team is and what they have achieved for through the first three games. I completely agree. I don't know if you caught uh, Coach Pelini's press conference Saturday after the game. He was asked about, is that Wade's package? Is that what he's going to be? And he said, in this game it was, yes. Yeah. But in other games, 
He yeah, he's not going to tip his hand. He's yeah. not going to tip his um, hand and say, yeah, this is his game package. We have five plays for him, and, and that's it. He's not, he, you know, <laughs> this is not his first rodeo. He's not going to tip his hand. But I like it now that when we need to put him in there uh, in a conference game, that's maybe because, Tim, we've seen it far too often in the last couple of years. Penguins can go to some quarterbacks. And that's not because they want to. It's because every team's going to need to use two quarterbacks. And if Mark Wade can come off the bench and spell you and make a big-time throw, then it's nice to get his feet wet. Um, Perfect example of what you're saying is many years ago I had the opportunity to interview Coach Trestle when he was at Youngstown State. And I asked him about how do you decide to use your quarterbacks mm-hmm. and how do you go forward, you know, making that decision when they play and when they don't or bringing in a yeah. second string quarterback. And he was, you know, a typical trestle type mm-hmm. answer, but he went oh, like this, but he gave an, an honest answer too, in the same vein, basically what he said that day. Mm-hmm. And he's shown it throughout his career as a, as a football coach is you always would like to have one guy be the guy mm-hmm. at quarterback. In the same t- in the same vein, you also have to get those that are behind them reps for they're able to step in if necessary. Or if you want to change packages mm-hmm. that you can and they're able to do that yes. as a change-up. Now, that's what the coaching staff under Bo Pelini is doing with their with their quarterbacks. I a nice the job quarterback is Mace. We know that. He's the starter. He's playing 75, 80% of the snaps, if not more. But they're bringing the other two in, and they're using them in packages and giving them opportunity to get ex- experience. And as we know as YSU fans the last 10 years, they've had had quarterback injuries. Yes, and that's why I was... And every year you have a quarterback injury, you have to have somebody. You don't want someone completely raw, inexperienced, taking over. Mm-hmm. You want someone who at least understands and has played with the ones. And that's what I believe this coaching staff is trying to do. Let's, let's keep going with quarterbacks because you and I have said this since episode one last year. And it's pretty common for every college football team out there. You're going to go as far as your quarterback's going to take you. And that's very key with YSU. Tim, all this all this talk of, oh boy, the Penguins don't have a quarterback. The Penguins don't have a quarterback. Oh, Mays isn't the guy. He can't be the guy. He can't win in this conference. And there's sometimes where I sat there and said, oh boy, I'm not sure he can be a quarterback that can lead you to a playoffs in this conference as a starter. Nathan Mays continues every week to look really good. We've always known he can run the ball. Uh, and that was evident again on Saturday. 10 carries, 63 yards, six, 6.3 yards per average, one touchdown, long of 24. But the thing that I really liked about Nathan Mays, 8 of 11 on Saturday for 131. Yards aren't going to blow you away. But you go 131 yards in only eight completions. Um, two things that I really – three things. He's pushing the ball downfield, and he's completing them. And when he's not completing them, the receivers have a chance to get them. Two, 
he's not turning it over. Knock on wood, he's not turning it over. And three, zero sacks. How how many times last year, Tim, were we were we behind the chains for the sacks? And we'll get to the offensive line in a little bit. But I know you've been uh, you've been honed in on the quarterback's progression each week. Nathan Mays continues to throw the ball deep well, but his intermediate game uh, on Saturday might have been the best we've seen since the Penguin quarterback since Kurt has probably. That may be true. I never give it, you know a comparison of thought, but that might be true. Uh, Mays was like you said, eight out of eleven. You go eight out of eleven in any game, I'm going to be happy. Yeah, if you're going, if you're as a team, you're doing ten of thirteen for 180 yards and a touchdown, and averaging almost 14 yards per reception. Yeah. That that you're you're doing a good job, and that's what the the Penguins need to do, and they need effective quality. Ball controlled, yes. Quarterback play. There will become a time in this season where they're going to ask Mays to do something he hasn't done and throw the ball twenty sometimes a game. Mm-hmm. There will become a time. Now, how do you build for that opportunity? You continue each week to put him in situations where he's comfortable, that passes that he can make, yep, and continue to sh- in practice work on that. And I honestly believe that's what's going on. And we're seeing that type of action. And then you look at the running game. I thought the running game did a terrific job. Tremendous I mean, job. Alessi had uh, 11 carries for 75 yards. You know, Mays, as a quarterback, carried the ball 10 times for 63 yards. You know, Turner came in, you know, and, you know, Wade, you know, had four carries with two touchdowns. It's just you want all the players you can to touch the ball. You want to spread it around either on the running game or in the passing game because, again, you're making your future opponents who see this on mm-hmm. film, who see this in scouting, who now has make their report and get you ready for that game. You want them to have to put their time in certain areas where maybe you can exploit other areas, exactly. and that's what it's all exactly. about. And that's what coaching is. Coaching is not all games, you know, getting you ready, prepared. Coaching is about building each, each week. week and building onto it. And this offense has to continue to grow. They're continuing to develop each week. That's the key. When this offense now, we've seen them score some points against, you know, Howard. We've seen them score against Samford. Now we've seen them score against Duquesne. Yes. That's what you you we knew. We now have a barometer saying thirty plus points a game is doable. Very very much in range for this team. Scoring three touchdowns, and you're going to need probably Tim to win conference games. You're probably going to need at least twenty four to twenty seven points a game to win in conference. Your defense is good, but you're going to see some big boys here in a couple weeks. You're going to need to score three four touchdowns. And in the past, Tim, you looked out and you were like, you can't score three or four touchdowns with this offense. Now you can. Now you're developing playmakers. And the thing that I loved the most was, you know, Saturday, look, you look, 41 carries, 209 yards. That's tremendous. That's really good. But the thing I liked the most is you weren't running the ball very well to begin the game. You were getting stuffed early. You weren't breaking off 
long runs like it was ease, uh, like you were against Howard or Sanford. And Duquesne stacked the box. And we found Samuel St. Seren, Ryan Emmons, um, Jeremiah Braswell. And now we have Miles Jordan at the tight end, three, three receptions, 88 yards. He's a matchup nightmare with his size. 6'4", 250, I think he's listed. You know, that's, that's a matchup nightmare. And uh, each week the Penguins are finding guys they can count on to get the football to. You have guys that can get to the first downs, and then you got guys like St. Seren and Braswell that can blow out the top off the defense. Um, and I like that the Penguins, even though... Everybody's going to play to stop the run. They're going to play. They're going to load the box up, and they're going to make Nate Mays and Joe Craycraft beat you. But I like the job by Crest and by Coach Peterson and Pelini to keep running the ball. Don't abandon it. How many times in high school and pro and college have we seen times where the first 15, 20 carries are not running the ball very well, and that's it. They're scrapping. They're going to throw it around the lot. Right, and how do you do that? Is your offensive line has to continue to evolve and move forward. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about running the ball, most teams can run through the tackles. Yes. All right. That's yes. they should be able to do that. What you have to do as your tackles on offense and your tight ends is control the edges for your quarterback or your running back who goes wide can turn the corner and get upfield. And so far this year, in each of the three games, you can say the offensive line has controlled the edges. Yes. And they've been able to use Craycraft, uh, Craycraft and Maze. Maze as runners and get to the edges. And they've used Alessi and others for that too. So when you're able to get to the edge and actually make progress, move forward and move the sticks, those are that opens up the field for other opportunities to throw the ball and to, you know, to run laterally left and right and make plays. So that's important. I think, again, what we're talking about is quarterback play, but most important we're talking about is offensive line continuing to getting better and making these plays and controlling the line of scrimmage. And if you can control the edges, that gives you such an advantage. When you watch YSU in the past, like last season, Mm -hmm. they had trouble controlling the edges. Well, here's the thing. Defensively, it's the same same challenge. Mm -hmm. And when YSU defensively had trouble containing the edges. Other teams ran all over them. And that's exactly what YSU needs to do offensively. And defensively, that's what the challenge is. And that's so far, like in a game against Duquesne, they were able to control the edges. And that, to me, was a big part of the game. And now going forward, you want to continue to grow on that and get ready. Now they have two weeks yep. for the next Another game. Off week. Yeah, and this will be the challenge, again, to deal with a bye week. And then, obviously, we, you know, you have the opportunity for another Pittsburgh school to come in. Yes. Tim, I've held it back until now, but I want to go on my soapbox now. Please go right ahead. Because... You know me. We've 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 done football together for three years now, 
going on for soon. Very, very rarely do I complain about officials. I'm pretty good. I don't, I don't, you know, oh, they lost because the officials or they, you know, the officials. What I watched Saturday, and you can go back and listen to Coach Plenty's press conference on Saturday also. What I watched Saturday was one of the worst officiated games I have ever seen in my life. And that includes 2005 USC at Notre Dame when it was hands down a hose job. Saturday was... I don't even... I don't even know what, what word to use. It was absolutely atrocious. The... The... First of all, is this football or is this flag football or is it two-hand touch? Because I have no idea anymore. Look, I get we're supposed to protect players. But at the same time, you can't tell a guy to tackle one way and not the other when you're going to penalize them for tackling the way you want them to be tackled. Yeah. And I have no idea what an uncatchable ball is anymore on pass interference. Look, I get we're going to get pass interference calls on us. We're going to get defensive holding calls on us because we play a tight man-to-man pressure defense. And Pelini's already said that. We're probably going to get those called because that's the way we play. And we're going to live with it. But our guys are also going to make plays because we're playing tight man-to-man pressure defense. And we did on Saturday. There are two plays that irked me the most and even irked me more last night and I wanted to call you and record last night because I saw a highlight of it. Penguins are up 27-7. Duquesne is at their own 45-yard line. Justice Reed finally, for the first time ever, all game was not held because he was held almost every pass play. They didn't call that. He came through like a, like a, like a missile, and just obliterated the quarterback. That was a clean shot. I mean, helmet was right in the chest was supposed to be. He came through and strip sacked him. First and ten, Penguins ball to Duquesne forty-five. The way we're moving the ball, waving, wearing him down. We're going to go on for a score, and you're going to kill the spirit if it already wasn't killed at that point. Penguins are in the huddle. They've already blown to go to TV timeout. YSU's on the field offensively, in the huddle. Duquesne's defense is on the field in the huddle. And then all of a sudden, no, wait, we have to decide. We want to review it. And then it takes forever to make a determination. And this wasn't the only replay that took forever because people off the air told me, and Ron Patassa said it, and Bob Hannon said it, that the reviews took far too long, and that's happening in every sport. It's not just football. So you review it, you call targeting, and you throw Justice Reed out of the game, and now he has to miss the first half against Robert Morris when he made a clean football play. And now, by NCAA rule, you can't review that because only to review targeting... It has, it has to be either you're confirming it or you're overturning it. 
There was no flag call for targeting. The flag called was too many men on the field for Duquesne. So it would have backed them up. How do you do that? That's, How do you do that? I'm not going to explain any of it. I'm going to tell you the rule, the way the NCAA does targeting is unfortunately the thought process behind it is to protect players, which everyone get gets. Everyone gets that, and I'm not here saying yeah. no one doesn't. The difference is my understanding of the, of the rule is on any play. A refill replay official or whatever the case may be could buzz down to say we're going to take a look at it, even if a flag was not thrown. Now, I'm not saying that's the best way to do it. I'm saying that's the way my understanding of the rule is. Does not mean it is correct. Okay. I don't have a rule book in front of me. I'm not going to make judgments because what I'm going to say. That, let me finish my thought here. What I'm going to say is the process of the rule is bad, and it has been bad for four or five years since it's come into existence. That's why you have lengthy delays, because you have such a severe penalty for it, where a player is ejected from a game and must miss an entire full game yep. of the next, either the next game or the half slash yep. next half. If that's the problem, is the rule of the the play, because any play can, if they determine there's a possibility of targeting, that's why they have the replay. Now, here's the problem with the level of football that Youngstown plays at, is you don't have the multiple cameras views that you have at Ohio State or Michigan or Notre Dame or wherever else those games are being played. You have two, maybe four cameras max. And you're not always going to get the most correct view of what happened. So when you make a determination like that, you're not just affecting the play of the game by having a lengthy five-minute delay mm -hmm. or longer. You're also affecting taking a player off the field, and not just for this game, but future games. The ruling... The the rule needs changed. It's not the official's fault that the rules are that way. The official can only make a decision on the on how it's written and the way it's applied. The way it's written and the way it's applied is wrong, and they need to change that. That's the problem. You don't targeting is a bad rule. What you need is unsportsmanlike conduct and say leading with the helmet and make a determination and penalize a team. And then say that's the first warning for a team and the second time it happens against that team, not that player, yeah, that, team, that team, Yeah. then players are ejected for the game. And I don't have a problem with that. That's the way I would change the fine. rule. But that's not the way the rule stated. And it's a bad rule that the NCAA has, and officials are asked to really become judge, jury, and convictioner of that. And that's the problem. They're asking too much of the officials, in my opinion. Well, They're asking a replay official 
and they're asking the officials on the field to do three things. Judge the play, then have a jury of the game by having the replay to determine if it happened or not, and then a conviction or a non-conviction. That's asking too much of an official crew, in my opinion. Well, I, then that's on the NCAA. Oh, yeah. I, that's not on the the officials. Now, you can tell me the officials were over-officiated, and I'm not going to disagree with you. Could they be a tic-tacked on on what holding and what was not holding? Could they have not kept their flags in their pocket for pass interference and stuff like that? You'll get official crews who are better than others. Mm-hmm. Just like you get umpires that are better than others at calling balls and strikes in the in Major League Baseball or at the plate or you know making determination of who's safe and and, and out on different plays, you're going to have levels of officiating crews that are excellent, that are very good, that are average, and that are below average, and that are those who you wish you never seen. Yeah, and from. Everything I heard and seen yet on the game, this one was an average to below average. And that was probably below average to failing. Mm-hmm. You're going to get that. And as long as you have the rules written the way they are in the NCAA about targeting, you're always going to have these problems. They, it is a bad written rule that was put in for safety. And probably put in more because some lawyer told him this is what you needed to do versus what football coaches and football players and football administrators would want to do. Well, here's two things that got me so upset about that. A, on the post-game show, Bob Hanna read the rule and said it. you have to show intent. You can't tell me that in a 27-7 game... On third down, Justice Reed is intending to hit the quarterback in the helmet. Well, again, I understand. No, wait a minute. Let me stop you. Like I've said before, the rule's written bad. Throw the written rule away. Basically, what you have to understand is what they're looking at is was the crown of the helmet going in first to a player. That's all they're talking about. And in the end, and then they're making a determination. And that's what the determination is. Like I'm saying, the rule is written bad, and the officials are asked to do too much. That's why you're always going to have controversial decisions made on this play throughout football. Well, then here's what got me so upset also, is I get home that night, and I'm watching Boise State and Portland State. The same play, the same kind of play happens. No flag is called. And they're wondering, why can't they go review it? And then the rules analyst on the game said, you cannot review it unless a flag has been thrown and you're confirming it or you're overturning it. And, and that's what got me so upset. I understand. And again, that's where the officiating crew, as I said, some are excellent, some are below average. And I get you're not going to This one get- is a below average who made a mistake. And that hopefully... Someone will point that out to them that they could not call that after the play. If you threw a flag for targeting, that's different. You make the yeah. announcement and then you go look. Yes, that of course is not what you're saying. That was a flag 
other than targeting was made, and then they made a determination they should look to see if targeting happened. I agree. That is not the interpretation of the rule. But I will go back to the same thing, saying the rule is bad, the way it's written, and what you're asking officials to do is too much. That's the problem. Yeah, this is a figure on NCAA. That is the problem with the rule. This is not, like I said, my opinion, no proof whatsoever. This rule is more written by lawyers Mm -hmm. than it was by football coaches, administrators, and players, and officials to get together and figure out what is targeting, what is not. And I understand why they have it, to protect players and to prevent concussions. I get all of that. What What my point of view is that we're asking too much of five or seven player or officials on the field and one in the booth to make that yeah. decision. That's the problem. We're asking them to be not only the judge of the game by throwing the flag or not throwing the flag, then we're asking them to be the prosecutor in the booth to review it. And then we're telling the, the same prosecutor to make a determination that he's guilty or not guilty. That's asking too much of an officiating crew and a replay official. That's what's wrong with the rule. Yeah, and and this is a figure on the NCAA. This is, I'm not trying to seem like I'm coming at the officials because there's bad officials all over the place and there's really good ones. The rule, like you said, for the NCAA, it stinks. And it's been bad for years, like you said. The second one that got me upset was I have no idea. I was always, always under the impression that if the ball is uncatchable, it cannot be called pass interference. Is that correct? If the ball is uncatchable, if the ball is overthrown by ten yards, and the receiver can, there's no way the receiver can get to it. All right, let me answer it this way: In high school, there is no such thing as uncatchable pass. As long as the pass is made, okay. it could be 30 yards downfield beyond the player. Okay. If there's interference, there's interference. At the collegiate level, I believe it has to be within reason. Now, I do not know the rule 100% because it's the same 15-yard yeah. penalty, not like the NFL, which is a mark foul. Yeah. Now, in the NFL, they have the catchable and uncatchable yeah. rule. At the collision level, I'm not sure they do or they don't. And I'm not sure either. And I will just tell you, at the high school level, there's no such thing as a catchable or uncatchable pass. It is, was there interference on the play? does not matter if the ball was 10 yards in front of the the intended receiver or 10 yards past the intended receiver. If the ball's in the air and you run into the receiver or you, you interfere with the receiver, that's a penalty at the high school level. At the collision level, I believe there's a little bit more interpretation to it where it is catchable or uncatchable. Now, to what degree it is, I'm not sure. I'm not an official at the collision level, and I have not talked to one in many years. Well, here's what. But I can make that determination. The NFL has that rule, high school does not. I do not know the absolute ruling at the collision level. Many people use the NFL rules at all levels of football, and that's incorrect. Okay, well, here's what kind of got me so worked up was, A, if there is uncatchable in college, 
The ball is overthrown by 10 yards. YSU's DB, uh, Kyle Hackett, has had that, and he's running the other way. Okay. Even if there's not uncatchable, there were two DBs around the play. Zaire Jones, Kyle Hegedus. The personal foul of pass interference was not caught on either of them. It was called pass interference 15 yards back on the YSU sideline. That receiver was nowhere near in the play. Okay. But, but, Hegedus is running back and then they throw the flag. So it wasn't even thrown during the play. It was on the run back. Well, again, I'll go back to the same thing I said before. There's a fishing crews that are excellent, and there's those who are below average. Obviously, we had a below average officiating crew. And I'm sure when they get graded, that they, they will be determined stuff like that. Uh, pass interference cannot happen before a ball is thrown if, if there's a buffer zone and you pass yeah. that buffer zone. Uh, so, yes, you can be called for pass interference away from the ball. Yes. And that sounds like what they were trying to, to establish. And, again, some officials are just not in the right position at the right place. And they some officials over-officiate thinking – Official, official B missed that yep. play, so I'm so official I'm A, it. so I'm going to make sure it gets called. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened here. I'm saying these things are nature in human behavior. And, again, you hope officiating is fair on both sides of the ball. I mean, that, that if it's it's kind of like, I'll go back to the baseball mm-hmm. analogy. You, you hear this all the time. As long as the balls or strikes are called the same way for both teams, both yeah, teams yeah. know what they got to deal with. And same with an NF, a football game. As long as the officiating crew is calling holding the same way on one team as it's doing yeah. the other team, you're or they're calling pass interference on one team over as the other team the same way, you can, you can make adjustments yeah, and you changes. Can live with that. The problem is, and I'll say it again, you have some excellent crews, and you have some below-average crews. And the university that does the hiring has to be able to make these determinations to try to find the right crews for their games. Now, as I have talked to other coaches in other sports, they'll tell you the best coaches float at the top. Yep. And they'll take on the big games. Yep. And as you go down in, in size as schools, you're not going to get the, a great official no. at our level or at Division Two or Division Three. Sometimes you're going to find some excellent crews. I'm not saying you won't because they're just fantastic at what they do. But for the most part, those crews are really good. They keep moving up in level. Yeah. It's kind of like baseball minor league system. And that's the same thing here. Uh, in the end, you have to deal with bad calls, and you have to deal and I with. I know how they're chosen, and I agree with you. It is unfortunate that you have a player paying the penalty that he's paying for a call that probably should have never happened. I'm not disagreeing with any of that, Anthony. I'm saying the reason stuff like this happens is this is a bad rule. The thing is, they're not going to change the rule during the season, and all teams are going to have to deal with this because we've seen other individuals at other schools who've been thrown out in the first quarter or this yep. fourth quarter yep. and 
You've seen where it's been multiple times where one says yes and one says no on the next one. And you're like, how can that first one be called targeting and the second one not be? It's a bad rule. What you need to do is to have a unsportsmanlike personal foul call, assess the penalty, and then assess warnings to the coaching staff that if this happens a multiple times, not you know, players can be ejected. Not necessarily the way they've done. Again, to me, without knowledge of how this came about. Mm-hmm. This seems like more like a rule that was done by lawyers yep. to protect your ass versus football people who care about the players and the way the game is judged. Yeah, and look, I don't want to spend a ton of time or a lot more time harping on the officiating because at the end of the day, it's a 34-14 thorough butt-kicking of a playoff team from a year ago. A game that was over at halftime. Um, and we look really good on both sides of the football. The coaching, the adjustments were, were spot on. Um, so I just had to get that off my chest. Oh, I have no problem with that. And it's legitimate. I don't want to take away what... What Saturday we thoroughly dominated a playoff team. And to be a playoff team, we're going to have to beat playoff teams. Look, you know, we, we talked about this before. Sanford, a playoff team last year, yep. 45-22 win. Yep. Howard, a 54-28 win at home in your home opener. Duquesne, a playoff team, 34-14 win. Yep. Those are three solid Ws on your, on your ledger. Three touchdowns. Yes, and those are solid W's on your ledger. And they've just been announced as they cracked the top 25 at number 24 this week. And you have the second Pittsburgh team coming in next, no, following week yep. with Robert Morris. So let's do the Pittsburgh sweep. Yeah. And let's move forward. Yeah. You know, and that's what I'm looking forward to. But yeah, I liked a lot of what we've seen against Duquesne. That was a solid performance offensively and defensively. And we didn't talk about the defense too much. But as long as they continue to create turnovers and give this offense a chance and have a chance to make defensive scores, I'm 100% ecstatic. Because this team continues to do what it needs to do. Yep. Take care of the ball offensively and create defensive turnovers and give your offense opportunities to score or your special teams opportunity to make big plays. And so far through three games, yeah, I give this team a solid B moving yep. forward. And I honestly believe YSU has an opportunity here to do very well in the pre uh, the pre the non-conference games, let me rephrase that. The non-conference yep. games to get ready for this conference because this conference is going to be very tough. Yeah. Penguins last year had three interceptions the whole year. Grand, we were missing Justice Reed. He causes pressure up front. causes mistakes. We were missing Kyle Hegedus. Two key players. Penguins for three games this year, six picks. You have two times. I think they got nine turnovers or 11 turnovers, something like that total. Yeah. We're forcing. We are doing exactly what you said. We're forcing turnovers, giving the ball back for offense, most time in short fields, and we're opportunistic. We are converting points off them. Well, that's that's football. like you said. We didn't we didn't spend too much time on the defense today. 
But I think as the year goes on, um, A, it's going to become, I don't want to say expected, because this defense unit's really good. It has potential to be really good. But at this point, you expect the defense to be the one thing you can lean on in games as the offense still continues to progress. Uh, Tim, if I, if you would have told me we're 3-0 with three, three wins each by three touchdowns, I would have said you're nuts. I would have said, I think we'll be 3-0. I didn't think we'd be 3-0 with, three, with uh, those three wins being by a couple of scores. Um, like you said, we're off again next week. The Missouri Valley Conference bye week is really early this year. And then uh, nine straight weeks of the meat grinder. Um, and you... So you... Like you said, let's get the sweep of Pittsburgh. Let's beat Robert Morris. We will talk more about that game next week as Tim and I will break down the Penguins and the Colonials matchup at Stambaugh Stadium under the lights as we will honor the 1979 and 1992 national runner-up teams. Um, And then it starts, Tim. We have an easy start to conference play against our nemesis, Northern Iowa. But we will talk about that in a couple weeks. But for now, any last thoughts? We get ready to enjoy a week off again before we take on the Colonials. Just what we always talk about. Spread the news about our podcast here on Radio MVP, uh, the Ice Castle Report, and others. Uh, tell your family, friends, and enemies. Give us a rating and review on iTunes and other platforms as we continue to grow. We thank you all for tuning in and downloading, and hopefully uh, you'll help spread the word about the Ice Castle Report and Radio MVP. So for Tim, I'm Anthony. You have listened to Episode 5 already of the Icecast Report here in Season 2. Once again, the Penguins are 3-0 for the first time since 2012. They'll be off this week. They return to action September 28th under the lights at 6 p.m. against Robert Morris. Penguins will look to go to 4-0 to end non-conference play and begin the real season, as many people call it. As Tim and I will be back next week to break down the Penguins and the Colonials matchup.